This is Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. I'm Alan Strickland. Biff Watson is kind enough to allow us into his studio. Biff, uh, thanks for letting us into your home turf. Very welcome. Uh, your credits, now this is just a slice of your credits. Bob Seger, Faith Hill, Charles Kelly, Keith Urban, Clint Black, Reba McIntyre, Billy Currington, Kenny Rogers, uh, Lady A, Chris Young, Amy Grant, Martina McBride, uh, Montgomery Gentry, Willie Nelson, Don Williams, Tim McGraw, Kenny Chesney, Sarah Evans, Dolly Parton, Blake Shelton, and this is just a slice of your credits wow. that go on and on. And so you play guitar in Nashville, I guess. I do, and uh, and have for most of my life, actually. Well, here in the studio wall, there is a red guitar, and you told me about this a while back, and it was sort of a glimpse into your life as a teenager. Will you tell me the story of this red guitar hanging on the wall? It's a Mustang, Fender Mustang. Well, the story is I was the oldest of four boys. I was in the kitchen. Mom says, go out there and get what's in the trunk of our 64 blue Impala and bring it in the house. And I rebelled, you know, I, I said, Mom, how come I've got to do it? You know, how come it's me all the time? I've got to go out there and, you know, how come Jim doesn't have to do it? He's my younger brother. She said, Biff, just get out there and take what's in the trunk and bring it in the house. You know, reluctantly shrugged out there and opened up the trunk of the car. And there was this tweedish gray colored case that I knew immediately what it was I picked it up and brought it in the house and opened it up and it was that red Mustang guitar and she looked at me and said do not tell your dad that I did that (laughs) (laughs) and uh, so I'm not sure I ever did tell dad of course he knew but what I did find out later on in life I think mom told me she said Biff your dad would have bought it for you if I didn't. So just, you need to know. So anyway, then just to give it, get it up to current, I gouged out the middle of it and tried to put a humbucking pickup in it. And uh, that's why it looks deformed right now, poor little thing. But it's, it's hanging in a prominent place in this studio because it means so much to me. Well, sometimes taking a saw and a screwdriver to something we love is just a way of showing affection when we're younger. Yeah. We're making it better. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless of what they think. So it sounds like your mom supported your love of music, and your dad maybe did maybe a little more under the table, but still the, the gift of the guitar was very clandestine. Yeah. Your mom told you to go get something out of the trunk of the car, and you sort of pushed back. You were the rebellious older kid. And that then later unfolded into a story you told me once about her actually leaving you on the side of Interstate 81. Were you you that bad, Biff? Were you that much of a disappointment? She didn't kick me out of the car or anything, you know. I was aware that I was being left on the side of the road. I told my parents I was going to hitchhike to Nashville. I had a best friend that was going to Vanderbilt there, and I knew I had a place to stay. So my dad looked incredulous and said, I mean, that's insane. That's outrageous. You don't have any money. And I looked at him almost equally stunned and said, I, I do too. I mean, you just gave me $100 for graduation. 
dad at that point said, okay, <laughs> you know, there's no reasoning with someone that has that kind of logic. I give up. Mom said, let me at least take you to the interstate. So I conceded. So the visual I have of this is, you know, you're getting out of your 64 Chevy Impala. You've got the tweed case with your Mustang. No, I didn't have it. All I had was a knapsack with a, a clock radio that I got for graduation and a pillow. You didn't even leave with a guitar. Uh-uh. You left with a clock radio and a pillow, and your mom left you on Interstate 81. Yep. So you made it to Nashville. Mm-hmm. How did you get started in the music scene once you got here? <laughs> I really started by going down to the Red Dog Saloon, and I would go in there, and I had borrowed a guitar from a gentleman that I ended up rooming with, and he had a countryman, a, a Gretsch electric, and let me borrow it. And so I would go to the Red Dog Saloon, and I would ask people if I could get up and play with them. And a few people would say, yeah, okay, sure. So I could I could listen to a verse and a chorus and then be able to play the rest of the song. So I would just sit back and listen to the first half of a song and then start playing. And the next time they play the song, I would know how it goes. Actually, when I first got to town, I would go over to the Parthenon and play on the steps over at the Parthenon. And Chris Gantry came up and uh, said, hey, man, you're pretty good. Why don't we go down to Combine Music and we'll let Johnny Johnson record you singing and playing some of your songs. So, And Chris Gantry had written Such of the Dreams of the Everyday Housewife for Glenn Campbell and I think he had made $30,000, you know, off of a song. It was like, good Lord, that's amazing. In $1960, (laughs) $30,000 to buy you a house and a car. Yeah, let me tell you, it was a lot of money, you know, in my eyes. So I went in the basement of Combine, and he recorded five songs, and I wish I knew where that tape is now. So you have a success story that started out with you hitchhiking, Uh, And there's a lot of other people who've come to Nashville sort of chasing the dream and have had really unfortunate experiences. You know, scams run by people posing as producers and talent scouts. I mean, there's a a really dark side to showing up in this town if you don't have some plans firmly laid out. So how did you avoid being scammed? How did you avoid the dark side? Oh, well, there were... There were dark alleys and paths. Uh, there were ways I could have gone. I was raised well, you know. I mean, as much talks. as you fought it, yeah, you can say now, years and years later, you were raised well. Yeah, you know, there were experiences I easily could have had if I had been more stupid. I think I just had a fairly good head on my shoulders. To resist doing some of that stuff. Now, when it comes to sharks and people saying... Yeah, how did you know who to trust and who to run from? How did you discern that yeah. boundary? Because it's really hazy in the inter- entertainment industry. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, one of the first times I remember, I had walked from where I was staying with my friend Jamie, which is over near the Parthenon, all the way to uh, what was then 16th Avenue. It wasn't Music Row. I walked with my friend Willie Young's Gretsch guitar. I don't know how many miles it is. It's you know it's not that far, but it's maybe four miles or whatever. And it was extremely hot. Uh, this was in the summer of '71. Got to his house, knocked on the door. He came to the door in his underwear, 
and said, hey, man, you're going to have to come back later. And I never came back. <laughs> but that was, you know, I didn't avoid getting scammed or whatever. Uh, I did have to suffer through a few of those kinds of incidents. And certainly there were people that would promise to pay me something and I would not get it. You know, this happens all the time with young, aspiring singer-songwriters. Someone will say, I can get you a record deal or I can get you a publishing deal. You know, it's going to cost you 15000 bucks for three songs and uh, you never see them again. I hear those stories all the time. It's amazing. It almost seems like everyone has gone through that freshman exercise. So they'll take your $15,000. You may actually go into a studio. Mm-hmm. They'll rip the musicians off. They'll rip you off. Mm-hmm. And then after that whole exercise is done, the recorded product goes nowhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, they're going to hype you like crazy. Man, that sounds great. You know, you are incredible. You're going to be a star. Uh, and then you never hear from them again. Right. So you've got your mom dropping you off on the side of the road. You go off to Nashville. You you do a variety of things. And then you go home for Christmas. What's mm-hmm. that What's that like when they're like, oh, this is our wayward son who we left on the interstate? <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow, that was me. Um, yeah, I would go home every Christmas. The first year that I started working with Crystal Gale, she had a single out that was doing okay called Somebody Loves You. So I went home for Christmas, and everybody asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm, I'm working with Crystal Gale. And they all kind of said, well, that's that's nice. Who's, who is that? I said, well, uh, she's Loretta Lynn's little sister. And they'd go, well, that's that's nice. I mean, are you making money? I mean, is it that's... That's that's good that you have a job, Biff. Yeah, that's sort of the when are you going to get a real job? Yeah, yeah, that's not nice. undertone at the holidays. Yeah, that's really <laughs> nice, Biff. But I'm what I'm talking about is like a job, you know, like a real job. So in the meantime, Crystal Gale has this phenomenally successful record. Don't it make your brown eyes blue? And we start traveling the world. We went over to Ipswich, England, Tokyo, the Budokan Theater, Yamaha World Popular Song Festival. And so I went back home for Christmas, and I was a celebrity. You're you're the hero now. Now Yeah, now I'm the the biggest thing that's hit the town, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing the same thing I was doing last year, and nobody cared. And now it's like, hey, this is Biff Watson. He's playing with Crystal Gale. Let's take a picture. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. What's it like? Well, it's not really any different. Well, and it was different because we had traveled the world. And, you know, it actually did feel like a big deal. But at the same time, I was still playing, you know, I think I was still playing bass. It's just she became famous. It was a a, a matter of perception. So... You play bass, you play guitar, you play piano, but you also are a producer. I mean, there's a reason that you have the studio that we're sitting in, and you have an independent record company. Mm-hmm. What is it to be an independent record company? Well, it's it's complicated. It's a lot of work. Um, no, 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 no. Independent means you make your own rules, oh, right? Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. It. I yeah. get to do whatever I want to. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you what that can mean and where I really understood the other side of the glass much more profoundly than I had before. 
By other side of the glass, you mean being on the control room side and on the administrative side. Yeah. So here I am in the studio itself where all of us huddle around and play music together. And um, then the producer and the engineer and, you know, probably label people are on the other side, uh, the other side of the glass. Management is on the other side of the glass. Labor is in the studio. And so... I always thought, well, I'm a musician. You know, these guys, they're marketing and promotion and A&R, but they're not creating the magic. They're the suits. They're the suits, and yeah. they're administrative, and they're business. And I'm not in the music business. I'm a musician. So you ask, what's it like to be an independent record label? Okay, now you're in charge of it all. You hire the players. You produce the record. I'm not going to purport to be... A great independent label, but uh, it is a vehicle that I can use to uh, to put out the music that I'm creating, to to give the songs that I'm writing with these artists a platform, and um, so. So you knew at some point you wanted to be an independent producer, and you built your studio here. Who was the first person that that you produced? I produced a number of things that really you know, had nominal success. I did a couple of records on Joni Harms, Western Swing records that did really well, especially in England and Australia. And then I also did a record on Tim Ryan, same type of thing, Western music. Just kind of skip forward in time a little bit. I had played on a few Aaron Tippin records Emery Gordy was producing in the beginning, and then he went with, I think, Steve Gibson and uh, Pat McMegan. Uh, and when we were when he was doing Pat McMegan's record, he um, came over here to do some pre-production here at my studio. At one point, he said, do you ever think about producing? And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, would you consider producing a record for me? And I said, you bet. So I got a call from Doug Howard. Lyric Street Records was the label. It was one of Disney's country forays into the country world. And Doug Howard had a meeting with me and said, would you be interested in co-producing a record on Aaron Tippin with Mike Bradley, who uh, is a great engineer here in town. So the two of us produced Aaron Tippin, and we put out the album. We put out a single, Kiss This came out sounding great. I was really happy with it. At one point, a few weeks into its release, the label said, this record is like a passion play or something. It's just flying up the charts. And I thought, that's great. And a few weeks later, the person from the promotion department said, Biff, um, your record is number one this week. And I said, well, like number one where? And they said, on Billboard. You know, the the main chart. I said, you mean like where Shania Twain and Tim McGraw and yeah, Biff, you're number one. And I, I couldn't believe it. And it was number one the next week for two weeks in a row. So when it comes to my success as a producer, that was the uh, the largest success I'd ever had. And then after 9-11, I was trying to think of something that Aaron could put out that would just be a statement about America and where we stand. Because he had put his first single was, you've got to stand for something. 
parenthesis, or you'll fall for anything. Aaron, Casey Bethard, and Kenny Beard had been writing on a song, and they chose that week to finish it up. We went in on a Saturday, recorded the song, then Aaron finished up his vocals, and we mixed it on Sunday. And on Monday, we had a meeting that morning with the label, and they said, we're going to put it out. I walked out of the meeting and said, when do you think we'll hear it on the radio? And they just said, turn it on, you know, just listen, and we'll see. So I went out, got in my car, turned on the radio, and it was playing. And this was 48 hours after we had recorded it, and it was Where the Stars and Stripes and the Eagle Fly was the name of the song. It was playing on the radio when I got in the car. I pulled out of the drive, uh, turned the corner, and Aaron and his wife, Thea and his manager, Billy Craven, were walking down the street from the radio station where they had just hand-delivered the, the single to the station, and they had started playing it. So those two records, uh, plus we donated all of the money that we made for a specific portion of that uh, run to the Red Cross, and I've still got a plaque in my house commemorating and according to people I know at the Red Cross, they said, you saved some lives with uh, with that money that you gave us and that record that you produced. So those are two of the bigger achievements for me. And, you know, to actually do something with music other than just entertain people. If you can actually save lives, you know. So at the conclusion of the meeting at the record company, you walked out, got in your car, and it was already on the air. Yep. Because Aaron had hand-delivered it to the radio station down the street. Yep. Wow. And that's sort of a, test, a testament to how small Nashville is, too. You know, I mean, you can walk out of the record company door and into the radio station door, you know, in about 300 yards. We throw around a lot of terminology talking about record companies and demos. So doing doing a demo, pre-production, master session – I just want to make sure I got this right for our listeners. So pre-production is where you just sort of work out the kinks, maybe do some arrangement. A demo is where you take a singer-songwriter's, what they've done. This is a song we've written, and we're going to do a demo of it to see how it actually sounds. Is that correct? Yeah, the demo is not a released product. It's not a commercial product. Because in Nashville, a lot of people that write songs don't perform. They're not really singers. So a demo, you get a, a group of guys together to play, and usually the writer is there, and they tell the players, here's how I'd kind of like it to sound, and they'll get a really good demo singer to come in and sing it, and they'll take that recording and go to either if they know an artist or a producer or an A&R artist and repertoire person at a label or the head of a label or a manager and they will do what we call pitch or plug the, the demo to someone that can get it to an artist that will record the, the real record. And at that point, if the demo sounds unbelievable, quite often the producer of the record will just say, let's just copy the demo. Or the demo can be just a guitar vocal or a piano vocal. Generally, a demo is a recording, but it's meant to be pitched, to be re-recorded. So it's almost like we're going to shop this around. So this is how the song could sound. 
if it were to be fully produced, and we're going to shop it around until someone will pick it up. Right. And then it goes into what's called a master session, where it's being recorded. Everyone's getting paid a higher level because this is going to go on the radio. This will be on an album that will be sold. Yeah, there's a lot more attention paid to not only the sound of, you know, so engineers are going to be much more particular about the levels and the tones and everything because it's much more critical. But a, a good example would be the song Somewhere in My Broken Heart. I played on the demo. And in that case, it was a Richard Lee, Billy Dean song. Uh, but when they got together, the producers, Tom Shapiro and Chuck Howard, produced Billy's record, they listened to a bunch of songs, and one of them was Somewhere in My Broken Heart. And they thought, this would be great on the record. Let's re-record it as a master. I had played on the demo. They really liked what I played, so they called me in to do the master. And that was that was probably one of the first masters that I really remember that I played on. So you played on the demo, and they call you in to do the master session. Is that a completely different feel? Are you more nervous, or are you just going to do what you did before? No big deal. Well, generally, there's a whole lot more money on the line. Often there's someone from the label in the room, you know, someone that can just stop the whole thing if they want, which is generally not the case uh, on a demo where it's just the songwriter. I, I have gotten nervous in the studio, there's no question about it. And it's not good to get nervous when you're playing. <laughs> That's doesn't help with your touch, your timing. Your brain really just needs to be concentrating on playing. I love what it sounds like in the headphones, especially with when Clark and guys like him are putting, getting my guitar sound. It just is really inspiring, and it's fun. And and it's fun playing with all of your teammates, you know, your other studio players. I think there are a lot of people that are unbelievable on stage where I do get more anxious, but others thrive on having a huge crowd in front of them and playing live, but they get really nervous in the studio. And for me, it's kind of the opposite. A lot of people don't understand that those are two completely different animals. I mean, yeah. recording and playing live are really different. Right. And it's not that, oh, when you're recording, you can always redo your part. I mean, that's true. But if you are known to be someone that wants to redo their part all the time, you're probably not going to get called much. I mean, you really do kind of have to get it right the first time because, like I said, this stuff costs a lot of money. And, and yeah, the scale for players, the studio costs, everything adds up. And if you don't get it within a certain amount of time, you're just wasting somebody's money. So if you're playing live in front of a crowd, you've got one shot. But in the studio, you kind of only have one shot. I mean, you could go redo your part, but you're running the clock. You're wasting everybody's time. So right. there's similar pressure, but a, a different feel. And live, although it's never impressed on me <laughs> enough, you know, you can make mistakes. I mean, people make mistakes, and it's nobody cares in the audience. I mean, it usually goes by pretty quickly, and unless you just are really screwing up, it's there's much more going on. There's you're, people are watching you walk across the stage, or looking at somebody else, or they're just not really. They're there to have a good time, and if you have a good time, it translates. Well, Biff, thank you for letting us use uh, your studio with the guitar from your mother still hanging on the wall. I think it's fantastic that uh, she 
backed you by getting you this guitar and continuing to be encouraging. And today's her 93rd birthday, is that correct? No, April 6th. April 6th. So we're coming up on her 93rd birthday, and you're going to FaceTime with her. I think that's very cool. Yeah, today I'm going to FaceTime with her, and uh, and then very soon I'll be able to go up and give her a hug, and it'll be a wonderful day. I think it's cool that she's 93 and she knows how to use FaceTime. There's something to that. <laughs> really? Yeah, she's pretty hip. All right. Thank you for your time, Biff. Certainly hey, appreciate it. Hey, thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. Send your comments and questions to audiotractor at outlook.com. And as we learned from Biff Watson today, call your mom now and then. It's the right thing to do. I'm Alan Strickland. Thank you for listening.